Guys, it's time to grab a Bible and um, open it to the book of Hebrews. But as you do, I need to tell you, say two things. Um, <clears throat> this Rosaria uh, Butterfield Conference, that's the fifth and the sixth, the title of it is Sexuality and the Christian, and that might confuse you just a little bit. Um, it's not about how to make your sex life better at home. It's not what it's about. It, it is a conference that has been spawned, and she speaks all over the country. It's been spawned by the rapid rise of the uh, political position and, uh, of homosexuality and the demand for their rights, and the Supreme Court decision this summer over same-sex marriage. So um, Rosaria, as, as I've said to you before, is a, is a former lesbian. She's brilliant, has a Ph.D., taught at Syracuse. And the Lord brought her to himself. And so she speaks of all things, including that, concerning sexuality in the Christian. Um, Kyle said it. I'll say it too. Mom and Dad, if you knew what your kids are saying to us, you would cancel everything on your schedule so that you could be here to hear this woman. I hope you will. I hope you'll be among us and um, confront the issues that are so absorbent, that is so absorbed our culture. Come be with us on the 5th and the 6th. It's, it's free, low commitment, Friday night, Saturday morning. You won't regret it. Now, one other thing before I read my text... Um, I am very, very nervous because I, I'm standing here <clears throat> as if, I mean, it's almost like uh, Timothy is preaching to the Apostle Paul because one of my greatest, one of my dearest friends is among us this morning, a man that has led me in so many ways. He's the one that gave me that experience 13 years ago in Budapest that changed my life. Um, I continue to meet with him uh, because it's just stimulating to discuss things with him, and, and, and it's getting scary how many things we agree about. Um, I think he would say the same thing. But um, his ministry in Budapest is now over, and uh, he's moving to a new place in Moscow. But this morning, he is worshiping with us along with his wife. Ronnie and Jane Stevens are among us, and they're over there somewhere. Where are you, Ronnie? Stand up, you handsome lad, you. There he is. <laughs> like I say, I, I feel like Timothy preaching in the presence of Paul um, in the midst. So, you know, if I, if I you know, flub up and forget my words, it's, it's his fault. Okay, guys, we're in the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to read to you, um, beginning at verse 4. You, remember, you may recall that I, I stopped in the middle of a sentence because there was so much in the first three verses that we couldn't cover anymore. So we're going to begin in the middle of that sentence in verse 4, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. So you follow as I read that which is inerrant, infallible. It's the very mind of God as black words on white pages. Let me read it to you, beginning at verse 4. It reads like this. Having become as much superior to, superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, 
Let all, the, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens and the, and the work, are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. <clears throat> Guys, when I first told my wife that I was going to be preaching um, a, sermon of, uh, a series of sermons on the book of Hebrews... Um, her response was something like this, yuck. And, and it wasn't exactly that. I mean, I, I may have, you know, uh, glamorized it a bit, but it was something like that. And, um, and she didn't explain her yuck, but, but I think I understood it. I mean, I understand why it is that the book of Hebrews is not exactly in, uh, on your list of the top five books that you love about the Bible. Um, this is a book that is relatively difficult to understand. It, it contains no stories, no miracles, no parables. Uh, there are few, if any, memorable texts that you're going to find in it. You know, the kind of ones that you want to cross-stitch and hang in your, your bedroom or, or put on a piece of wood and lacquer it all up and hang it in the kitchen. Um, very little of that in this book. Um, few uh, professing Christians know who Melchizedek is, and Melchizedek is brought to light in, in the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, I, I understand, guys, that because of those things and maybe others, we shy away from it because it is... Um, it's low on what you would call curb appeal or, or eye candy. So, um, so one of my goals, both this morning and throughout the series on, in our, as we study it, um, <clears throat> one of my goals is to show you that, that texts that may at first glance seem difficult and perhaps convoluted really aren't. And... and um, uh, there may be some passages in, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, that that'll be tough. But in the main, ladies and gentlemen, most of what is is in here, you can really get. I, I promise. I, I think a good illustration of that is our text this morning, verses four through fourteen. Uh, what is all that about that I just read you? Well, I'm going to try to explain that to you this morning, but, um, but if I do, you've got to promise me something. No more yucks. 
Guys, um, I think you will agree with me that last week's text, those first three verses, they were pretty powerful. I'm not saying that my sermon was powerful. I'm saying that, like, like one author said, that stuff is nosebleed Christology. Those first three verses, nosebleed Christology, and, and indeed it is. There is so much packed about Jesus Christ into those three verses that, that it, was, it was hard to grapple with because of all that was being said about him. So, the author then follows up those three verses with 11 verses um, that I have to confess that I really didn't get the first time I read them. Well, what is he saying in all that? And maybe, maybe you didn't understand as I was reading them to you. Um, what, what is being said here? Okay, guys. <clears throat> it's really pretty simple. I want you to notice, and you're going to have to have your Bibles open uh, as, we, as we go through this, but I want you to notice that the theme of the book, the theme of the book of Hebrews is found in verse 4. Let me show it to you. Having become as much superior. There it is. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the theme of the book of Hebrews. The author is making a claim that Christ is much superior. And, or, and some of your translations may say, uh, so much better than. Um, he is going to use that formula, that is, so much better than, or much, he's going to use that 13 times throughout the course of the book. A better hope, a better testament, a better covenant, a better promise, a better sacrifice. Um, because, ladies and gentlemen, that's his theme. That Jesus Christ is so much better than. And then he's going to give you 13 examples 13 items of which Jesus Christ is so much better. And in our text this morning, that barrage of 13 items begins. You will notice in verse 4, he has become as much superior to angels. That's the first one. Actually, that's not the first one, but he is superior to angels. Jesus Christ is superior. Now, guys, let me remind you, I said this last week. The author is writing to a small band of converted Jews living in Rome who are just begun to experience some pretty serious persecution. And so these Jews are thinking, wait a minute, I didn't sign on for this. Um, and, and I know how to um, stop all this persecution and get, and get, and get it stopped in my life. What, what I'm going to do is all I need to do is return to Judaism. And so to that, to that audience, this author says, you can't do that. God forbid that you should do something like that. Because you see, Jesus Christ is so much better than so much better than anything that you would go back to. And in this instance, it's Judaism. And then he starts. 
13 different times he's going to say, he's so much better than this, he's so much better than that, he's so much better than this. Why would you ever dream of going back to that when Jesus Christ is so much better than this? He's so much better than that. And in this instance, he uses angels as his first example. That is, Jesus Christ is so much better than angels. All of heaven's occupants, Christ is superior to them. To, to, to angels. Now that's a subject that we find fascinating, isn't it? Angels. I mean, you can hear, even hear people discussing angels um, on the Oprah show, you know? People got all kinds of opinions about angels. I mean, was that an angel that showed up and it's a wonderful life? Was that an angel? Well, guys, whatever you may whatever conclusions you may draw about angels, here's one thing I can tell you for sure. Jesus Christ is superior to angels. He is so much better than angels. Now, guys, we've already settled. We settled this last week. You remember that Jesus Christ is better than he is superior to all those other prophets. Remember how the book opens? Long ago, in many ways, God revealed himself through all the prophets. But today, um, and one of their much beloved prophets in Judaism is, of course, Moses. Um, the lawgiver, you remember him? And, and this book is going to get to him in chapter 3. It's, he's gonna, the, the author is going to be telling his audience that Jesus is superior to Moses and all those other prophets. But, but, but Jews love to make a whole lot about how their law was delivered to them by angels. So, as we begin, Jesus Christ is so much better than the lawgiver, Moses, the law messengers, angels, and the law itself. Guys, because that's what he's trying to accomplish with his audience. He's trying to convince them that to turn any place else would be utter insanity. And having made that point, the author now gives you his second example He's better than the prophets, but secondly, he's better than the angels. And from there, from verses 5 to the end of the book, what he does is simply prove his assertion. My assertion is Jesus is superior to angels. And then, starting at verse 5, he begins to prove that point. That is, prove that Jesus is better uh, than angels. Okay, so look at it. Look at verse 5. He says, okay, here's proof number 1, verse 5. Uh, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me as a son. It's a rhetorical question, ladies and gentlemen, and he's asking, to which of the angels did God ever say, that um, you can be my son? The answer is none of them. He didn't say that to Gabriel. He didn't say that to Michael. Jesus is not some 
elevated angel. He's, um, he's not some head of the angelic uh, core. He's not some archangel. No, no, no. He's God's son. And there's only one of those. Gang, as glorious as angels may be, they are not sons. And as I tried to demonstrate to you last week, you may recall out of John 5, John 5, 18, for Jesus to claim that God is his Father is an outright claim to deity. Here's a text that says, oh, he's superior to your angels because <laughs> to which one of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? He didn't say that to any of them. But he did say that to Jesus Christ. Guys, here's his second point. Um, it's in verse 6. Um, his second proof. He, he says, and, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The second proof that he offers is, oh, he's superior to angels because you see, don't you see, don't you get it, don't you understand? Angels worship him. Guys, there's a scene in the book of Revelation where um, all these angels are gathered around the throne. Big group of angels gathered around the throne. And on the throne is the Lamb. The lamb that taketh away the sin of the world, who you know to be Christ. And so in the book of Revelation, the angels, the angels are worshiping him. Um, not only does he evoke worship, that is Christ, it is commanded that he be worshiped when the exact opposite is said about angels. Don't you dare worship them. Because, you see, all the angels are worshiping him. Um, here's proof number three. It's in verses eight and nine. Uh, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uh, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved right, uh, righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the uh, oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here's proof number three. The one on that throne that I just mentioned, the one on the throne that's mentioned right here, around which all the angels had gathered, <clears throat> that one is a divinely acknowledged superior or a divinely acknowledged sovereign. Notice, he is called God. You notice there is a scepter in his hand. You know what a scepter is, don't you? That's what kings hold. Kings hold these scepters in their hands, you know? That's what kings do. And he's sitting on a throne, and, and notice in the text it also calls about, talks about his kingdom. And that kingdom is one that lasts forever and ever. If there's an eternality to his kingdom. About which angel could you say that? None of them. This one is God. He's got a scepter in his hand. He's sitting on a throne and his throne is eternal. Why? Because you see, he is so much better than he is superior to. You see, none of that applies to angels. It only applies to, to Christ, which is the author's point. Jesus Christ is so much better than. Here's his proof 
number four. His, that is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. Um, and you, Lord, uh, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and of the heavens and the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here's his fourth proof. He is called, that is, Jesus is called, Yahweh. Now, I know you don't see that in translations, but look at verse 10, you, Lord, now, gang, it would take me a whole long time to demonstrate that to you. We'd have to go back to the Septuagint and show you the Greek word here is kurios. That's the one that's used in, in Septuagint to translate the word Yahweh. Jesus is being called Yahweh here in verse 10. Um, and then it says, it goes on to say, that he laid the foundations of the earth. That is, he's the creator. Um, that was said about him in verse 2, but here it's said again. And then it goes on to say that heaven and earth will pass away, but you won't. Because you see, he is the creator. Creator. Angels are the created. And here's the fifth point, or the fifth proof, that the author offers to substantiate his claim that Jesus is superior to angels. Um, it's found in verse 13. And to which of the, again, it's a rhetorical question, and he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? To what angel did God ever say that? Sit here, in this position of cosmic authority. Sit here, while I make your enemies your footstool. Who did he say that to? He said it only to Christ. You know, guys, um, there's only one personage that sits in God's presence. Jesus. Angels don't sit. Do you, do you remember the, just to prove that, do you remember the story, the, the Christmas story that we just made so much of in December, and rightly so? The Christmas story begins not with Mary and Joseph. Did you, do you realize that? In the book of Luke, the Christmas story begins with a visit from an angel to, to um, uh, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And the, the angel tells him, while he's serving in the temple as a priest, that his wife's going to be pregnant. They're going to have a son. And remember, he's made mute and all that business. But he's, um, he loses his ability to speak because he says to the angel, he says to the angel, um, hey, well, uh, you know, that's really great, but uh, how's that going to happen? At that point, the angel is forced to identify himself as Gabriel. This is verse 19 of Luke 1. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. Now listen. Who stands in the presence of God. <laughs> you see, Gabriel stands. Because no angel can sit. Because you see, to sit means that your, your job is done. The job of the angels is not done. They're ministering servants, according to verse 14, that come to minister to those of us who are God's people. They stand in God's presence. And to which one of those angels has God ever said, sit down? None of them. Because you see, there's only one who has accomplished his work. There's only one who began his work, completed his work, 
finished it, and sat down. And that was Christ Jesus. Because you see, he is so vastly superior to angels. No angel is ever called God. No angel is ever called Son. No angel is ever called Yahweh. Angels are created, according to verse 7, and none of them ever sit. Why? Because they're inferior to Christ Jesus. Oh, my friends, what beauty is being presented to you here. He says to his audience, why would you folks dream about going anywhere else? You know, there's a, <clears throat> there's a scene in the ministry of Jesus Christ in John 6. Uh, go read John 6 this afternoon before the games. Um, John 6 is wonderful. It's just, just chock full of information and good stuff. But anyway... Uh, Verse 44, verse 65, verse 37, those are just enormously important. But over, I think it's about verse 67, Jesus notices that his his audience, the crowd, is beginning to drift off. You know, they heard enough. They heard all this hard stuff that Jesus was saying. They had enough. You know, know, put me down for no interest. I'm leaving. And so they begin to, you know, kind of bleed away. And uh, Jesus sees that, and he turns to the 12, and he says... um, Hey, uh, you guys, you want to go too? And Peter steps forward and says, where will we go? (laughs) Where will we go? Who else? Who else gives us words of life? Ladies and gentlemen, in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he did, why would you ever relegate him to some inferior position while you go off and chase your career? Does your career give you words of life? Tell me, in light of who Jesus Christ is, and you're going to see over and over again in this book, why would you relegate him to an inferior position to your family? Is it your family, ladies and gentlemen, that are going to give you words of life? Why would you relegate Jesus Christ to any secondary position while you go off and chase success? Is that going to give you words of life? Guys, I think you know better. And the goal of this author is to say to you, why would you go anywhere else? Because there's nothing that compares to the beauty and the excellence and the eternality and the deity of this one we call our Savior. Let me, let me say a couple of quick things and I'll quit. Just in terms of application of chapter 1, gang, one of the lessons that you can learn is the inspiration of the Old Testament. 
Gang, all of those citations that I quoted you as he, as the author uses them to prove his point, all of those citations that he uses are directly out of the Old Testament. He is using the Old Testament to prove his point. And so for us to neglect the Old Testament is, is our loss. A second thing that this text teaches you is the reality of the angelic world. I don't know what you think about that, ladies and gentlemen, but in verse 14 it says they're ministering spirits that are, that are standing ready to come serve us. So that's the second thing that the text teaches. But here's the, here's the last one. The one being described here in Hebrews 1, this one of exceeding beauty and greatness, the one who is immutable and is eternal. He is the one, the same one, who died in the place of sinners. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I think you've heard that so much that it's become second nature to you now. But let me tell you about some people who just can't quite get over it. Angels. Angels cannot quite get over the fact that this one that is worshipped by all of the heavenly hosts has left his home in glory so that he might die for someone as wicked as I am. Over that, ladies and gentlemen, They fall in everlasting worship. Let me tell you a story and I'll quit. It's not a very good story, but it does make a point, I think. Um, a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, I forget when, but it was a, it was a part of a news segment that, that I watched, uh, the evening news, and, and it was about our president, Barack Obama, who, um, who had gone into a uh, coffee shop, I, I guess in D.C., it might have been someplace else, but he went into this coffee shop and... Um, and he goes to the, the, the cash register and he orders a, um, a bagel and coffee. And, um, and he reaches into his pocket and he's, he's trying to pay for his, his bagel and his coffee. And the owner is in the news segment. And, and, you know, the news media are just making this huge deal about, you know, the president paying for his coffee and his bagel. You know, oh, look at this, you know, and... And the owner of the store is kind of, you know, stepping back and saying, no, 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 I, you, no, yeah, you can take it. No, no, no I, I, it's all yours. And he said, I mean, uh, he, he didn't want to take the money. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the, the normal response, the normal understandable response that when you are in the presence of greatness, or supposed greatness, when you're in the presence of greatness, the one thing that you want to do Is give. Guys, I'm not talking about your money. I got much bigger fish to fry than your money. When you understand what the author of Hebrews understood, you will.
will stop draining away portions of your life and giving it to nothingness. Why would you do that in the presence of the one angel's worship? The only right response when you understand who he is is to give yourself unreservedly. Our Father, would you remind your people that the Savior that we sing about, the Savior that we love, the Savior that we think we know a lot about is a whole lot bigger and better than we thought. That he's not an assistant, he's not a helper to make my life better and work more smoothly. He is God in flesh, and he has come that undeserving people like me might have eternal life. So, Father, if you brought someone here this morning who has not yet met the this beautiful Savior of ours. Would you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear that they might discover the grand beauty of Christ and Him crucified. For the rest of us, Father, who know Him, would you impact us to the point that we find ourselves giving away more of ourselves? so that his kingdom might be built. We ask this, of course, in Jesus' name.